0: The angel went to mary and said you will give birth to a son and you are to call him jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the most high the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign forever his kingdom will never end So tonight, like um, Susanna said, we're going to be talking about making Jesus king, making Jesus king of your wealth. It's uh, an interesting subject to talk about, to talk about money. It's one of those things uh, that sometimes we get nervous about. But it's a, a subject that Jesus comes to time and time again in Scripture. Now the subject of this series, Make Jesus King, is really inspired. Because we wanted to look at the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. Uh, As we move forward into Easter, we um, always at this time of year, we we have a look at a gospel and we focus in on how we can meet Jesus in a fresh way. And uh, we were inspired by the first chapters or the first words that are spoken about Jesus. And they each have a distinctive flavor. So Mark, the very first verse of the first chapter of Mark, it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. When it comes to Matthew, he uh, has the angel speak in that first chapter and the angel says, you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then John, his first chapter, the very first verse, it says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so these different gospels, they have a different take. They're introducing Jesus, they're preparing you. This. Is how you think about Jesus this is the scene that we're setting Mark says he's the Messiah he's the chosen one he's the anointed one he is the deliverer that God has spoken about before ages and Matthew says he is the Savior he's gonna save you from your sins he's gonna save his people the name Jesus means he will save and John says He's not just a man, he's not just a human savior, not just a human messiah, he is the word made flesh, he's the very definition of God himself. You see God, you see Jesus. You see Jesus, you see God. But the words that we hear from David Suchet, my man, David Suchet, at the beginning of the trailer, is all about Jesus being king. And the angel, again, chapter one, speaks to Joseph and to Mary and says, he's going to be given a kingdom. He's going to reign like David. And over his kingdom and in his reign, there will be no end. And so Luke has this uh, introduction to Jesus as king. A king who demands allegiance, a king who demands our um, obedience, our respect, a king who has the right to tell us what to do, how to live, and uh, who we obey. And it's really quite a difficult thing because many of us were happy with the concept of Jesus saving us, being the redeemer, being God even. But when we think about Jesus being king and demanding stuff of us, it can be really difficult. If you are watching, or if you're here and you're not sure about faith, the idea about having someone that you can call on, someone that will, will pray and answer your prayers, is great. Having someone that you have to make an account to, submit your life to, do what they say, is a challenge. And that's why the first series, the first part of the series that we had last week with Matthew, Matt Miles, uh, it was, He's King of Your Doubts. And so this is a very different kind of king. You know, Luke is the gospel, which is all about Jesus being uh, human level, about him ministering to people, about him identifying with people. And if Jesus is loving and if he's gracious and if he's kind, if I can make him king of my doubts, then I'm happy to have that kind of king because he's not going to oppress me. He's actually going to lift me up. And so we talk about wealth. Sometimes people will say if they've been around Metro and they've heard heard us talk about money. And by the way, if you're new here or if you're watching online for the first time, uh, well done. You lucked out. You got the money one. Um, Excellent. But people will sometimes say, why do you talk about money? And the reason is that Jesus talked about money. In fact, in the book of Luke, it's unavoidable. You cannot study Luke without talking about money money and wealth and riches and responsibility and the poor and all of those kinds of things. Jesus talks more about money in Luke than any other gospel. And Jesus talks about money a lot. He talks about money more than prayer. He talks about money more than worship. He talks about money more than heaven. He talks about money all the time. And that's the second reason that we talk about money, because there's no greater way of indicating your level of understanding of who God is, your relationship with God. Money is the thing that defines things. It it lets us know what is important to us in our lives. You can know more about a person's spirituality by looking at their credit card statement or their bank balance than pretty much anything else. Because where your money is, Jesus says, that's where your treasure is going to be. Their heart is gonna follow that trajectory. And so Luke chapter 16, Jesus gave one of these really famous uh, proclamations, declarations about money. He says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He's essentially saying you're gonna have a master whether you think so or not. Everyone has a master, why? Because we need something to give us meaning. Uh, You can't get meaning out of your own self. You need external something to give you meaning. And what gives you meaning, what gives you value, what you live for, that is effectively your master. That's what you're serving. And so he goes on to say, and he says, you cannot serve both God and, and what? And if you're not a Christian, then you might think you can't serve both God and the devil. Uh, you can't serve both God and the world. You can't serve both God and, I don't know, your career. No, he says, you can't serve both God and money. Because money is the greatest competitor of your affection and of your trust than anything else in the world and Jesus says it's, it's very simple, it's, it's a black and white thing. Either God is in charge or money will be in charge. But you can't have a little bit of both. You can't really truly know Jesus as king if money has a hold on you. It's a great thing to kind of benchmark where you are in your devotion and your faith to Jesus. And so that's why we talk about money, because it's a great indicator. It it lets us know where we're at, and it helps us uh, move forward in the direction that we want to go. Now, this is a story that we're going to tell about um, money, and it's a story that comes directly just a few verses uh, earlier from where Jesus said that at the very beginning of Luke chapter 16. Now, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try and relay this parable to you. But I am making a fundamental rookie error because I'm about to teach you an attempt to open up to you the worst parable ever. Uh, When I say worst, I mean the one that most preachers and teachers think is the worst because it's the most difficult. In fact, this is the kind of parable that doesn't often get preached about because people find it so weird. Uh, In fact, in the early 4th century, the Roman Emperor Julian, he says, it's exactly because of parables like this one that Jesus told, that I don't believe in Jesus, I don't have anything to do with Jesus. Because this is a parable about Jesus praising a crook. And it's the kind of parable that you just, you read it and you think, I don't get that. I'm not sure what's going on. So I'm going to go for it, and if this all goes horribly wrong, then (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, we've got the weekend next week, yeah, well, everyone will forget about it, it will be fine, but the thing is that some of the stories that Jesus told are so particular to his time, his context, and his culture, that unless you understand a little bit about it, you won't get it, and actually, this parable that I'm about to go through with you, the parable of the manager, it, I, I, my bet is that this was Jesus's favorite parable, you know, so Jesus will be consulting with the angels, and he's like, you know, right now, 2022, what is my most loved parable? And the angels would be going, it's um Good Samaritan. It's like, Jesus, what, really? The Good Samaritan? What about the Shrewd marriage? No, no, they they hate that one. It's like, but that was my best work. That was my funniest gag. I mean, I worked on that. That's the one that had the house brought down. People would be laughing their eyes out. Laughing their eyes out? Did <laughs> you laugh your eyes out? Did you cry them out? They'd be laughing their legs off. Uh, yeah, this was the, it killed back in the day. You, you're saying that people don't even preach on this one? And the angel said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. They they love the prodigal son. They love the good Samaritan. The shrewd man. They hate that one. Uh, plus, it's about money, so that's a double strike. But what I'm going to try to do is just illustrate a little bit about what's going on, because Jesus is speaking to this cultural, agricultural uh, society in the first century. And he's just really, really, really funny. And if you can get into the mindset, it's really funny. For example, when Jesus says, one of the things, he's talking about hypocrisy. He, he's like really funny, but we don't get it because we read it in an old-fashioned version, and we've heard it since we were kids, a lot of us, and we just don't get it. So Jesus says at one point, he says, don't try and get rid of the speck in your own eye until you've got the plank out of your your eye. You know, don't go around with a plank trying to say, hey, mate, you've you got a speck in your eye, let me just get it over here. Thank you. It wasn't supposed to happen, but you can see how I'm really, really trying to get this thing of Jesus being, you know, speaking in ways that people absolutely love. So we're going to do the parable of the shrewd manager. It's Luke chapter 16, verse 1. It says this Jesus told his disciples. So this is a story that's told to disciples. And that instantly gets you off the hook. So if you are new here, or if you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure about your faith, you can rest assured this one is not for you. So if you've been kind of circling around Christianity or you've been looking at church and you're thinking about things and you're considering your options, you don't have to worry about any of the, the rest of this talk. You can relax. You can be easy. This is literally only for something that is for disciples. This was like inner circle stuff. The 12 that were following Jesus. Uh, the, the others who were on the periphery, on the edges, who, who were desperately wanting to be like Jesus. And so this is very self-consciously, very specifically addressed to disciples. It, it's a challenge for us, but it's just for disciples so again if you're new if you're checking things out particularly if you're new to church please you can just enjoy this in a kind of vicarious way you can look at the person next to you who is trying to be a disciple and you can say well good luck with this one so Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says this there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions so he called him in and asked him what is this I hear about you give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer it's funny because this chapter 16 comes after chapter 15 very good and in chapter 15 it actually is the parable of the who knows this one lost coin lost lost sheep and lost son son, prodigal son it's almost like a kind of sequel because they're both about rich, wealthy landowners who are incredibly gracious. And so this guy, he's in an agricultural setting, it's kind of a small village, and he has these great lands and properties. He has people who are renting land off him and really looking to him to give them a leg up in their own businesses. And because he's got all this stuff, he's got a manager to help keep everything in order. And this manager just keeps the accounts. He's got the account book and he makes things happen. But he hears from reliable sources that the manager is dishonest, that he is not doing a good job. And so he's going to sack him. Now, we don't know this just by looking at it through 21st century eyes, but in the culture of the day, everybody would know that normally you can't just get rid of servants. You get rid of a servant and they're going to be destitute. They're, they're in big, big trouble. And you definitely can't just get rid of a senior manager, someone who's managing your whole affairs, your, your accountant, your, your kind of steward. Normally, there would be days worth of negotiation and, and haggling, and the guy would come back. And, and uh, so when Jesus is... Telling this story already, it's a great story. People are leaning in, the disciples are loving it. Oh, yeah, there's a landowner, he's got this steward. The steward's been found out, he's in trouble. We all know what's going to come next. It's all the excuses that the steward is going to make, you know. So, the steward they expect the steward to do all this stuff, and it's usually quite comical. The steward will say, Oh, my beloved master, I have served you. My father served your father, my grandfather served your grandfather grandfather? Why ruin this beautiful three-generational relationship over a little misunderstanding about money? We can work something out, surely my master. That's what they would expect. He doesn't say that. Or he'd expect the guy to kind of come out and uh, just make an excuse for himself. Oh, my master, I've tried. I've honestly tried my best. I don't have a thousand eyes. The people that you put to work with me, they're the crooks. I can't see behind me. I'm not like the cherubim, the seraphim. I haven't got eyes in the back of my head. I don't know what's going on. I've tried my best. But these crooks that I've got all around me, they're the ones to blame. Please, master, have mercy. He doesn't do that one or he could kind of really try the, the kind of the ballsy outrage approach master who are these liars who are saying this thing about me bring them in front of me let's see if these cowards will see and speak those same lies in front of my face and so the audience are waiting for this kind of response and it's it's kind of comical and it's a fun story they're engaged in it because this is just like village life but None of these things happen. Jesus lets it just hang. He says, the man is accused. And then what does the steward say? He says absolutely nothing. And at this point, trust me on this, (laughs) everyone just bursts out laughing. They burst out laughing because they know that silence means I'm guilty. I've got no leg to stand on. And the fact that he doesn't say anything is, it's kind of funny in and of itself. And so he goes away and he starts to figure out what are the options that I've got. It says this, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Again, it's humorous. He's saying, I'm I'm too weak to beg. I'm too proud. I'm too weak to dig. I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? Because this is an honor culture. If you're dismissed because you've been dishonest, everyone will know about this. Word will get out. Your reputation is trashed and tarnished. No one will touch you with a 10-foot pole. He says, how am I gonna get into someone else's house? In other words, how am I gonna get employed into the household of some other wealthy guy and and do work for them? No one's gonna take me on because I have lost my name and I've lost my honor. What am I going to do? So he does a quick inventory of what he's got. First of all, he's been trusted with resources he's been trusted with wealth. The master's actually given him the books, given him the accounts, given him the uh, the ability to manage his whole accounts. The wealth that runs through his fingers is not his own, but he's been trusted with it. He's now got limited time. So the master has said effectively you're you're done. You're out of here. You 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 just need to pack up your things and get out. But in between him being fired privately in front of the master and him leaving, I've got a little window of opportunity. I've got a little bit of time and I've still got access to these resources. I've got a little bit of time. It's not my money, it's not my wealth, it's not my resources, not my riches, but I do have some time and I've been trusted with it. But then the third thing, and the whole parable really rests or falls on this. The third thing that I have, I have a good master. I have a good master. I mean, I have a really, really good master. By rights, if you find out that your steward has been stealing or dishonest or mismanaging your resources, you would do two things. One, you would throw them into prison. Two, you would um, demand that they work in some kind of um, servitude until they've paid off their debt. So you, you either push them into indebted slavery or you throw them in jail. You know, you, you, you get them absolutely, their life is over. But this guy is gracious. He's just like, you've let me down, and I'm gonna let you go. That's it. He's a profoundly good man. And this is what happens. And, and so Jesus is telling the story, and I'm having to sort of fill in the blanks for you, but everyone in that culture, they knew this is the situation. And he comes up with this thing, and this is where it becomes a bit like Ocean's Eleven because he's like i'm gonna do a scam i'm gonna do a con Uh, apart from it's not oceans 11 it's oceans one or or just um just ocean Uh, and and he and you can hear the music coming in and he's got his little board and he maps it out and then this is what he does so he called in each of his master's debtors he asked the first how much do you owe my master three thousand liters of olive oil he replied The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and write in 24. Now, what is happening here is he's being really, really, really smart. He's being really, really clever because the master has sacked him in private no one knows about it. None of the other servants in the house know about this. And as Jesus is telling this story, and as he goes on to describe what the servant is doing, people are loving it. I can tell that you're not getting that this is a hilarious story, <laughs> but trust me, this is hilarious. People are killing themselves. They're just loving this. And uh, he, says, he says, right, what I've got to do is I've got to work individually. So he gets these guys in individually. He doesn't bring them in as a group where they kind of confer with one another and figure out, hey, something strange is going on. He's still got the books. He's got the accounts of every, um, of his master's transactions. And uh, while he's got the accounts, he can actually do something with them. And so he says, quickly, quickly, quick, uh, I need to see you. When he calls them in, they come running because the master would only call these debtors in, these kind of business partners. He would only call them in. If there was something very, very important to going on to to to, um, to sort out, otherwise they would just come at harvest time. But being called out unexpectedly, they all come and they go individually. And he says, "Right, you owe what? Three thousand liters of olive oil? Let's make it fifteen hundred. That fifteen hundred is a fifty percent reduction in the bill. That's worth around about five hundred denarii. Five hundred denarii. So a denarius coin is." a day's wage for a a farm worker. So it's about a, a year and a half's wages. And the same amount for the other guy with the wheat. Um, It's around about the same value and all the other, this is like tens of thousands of pounds of his master's money and the guy's just writing it off but he says, he's really, really smart, he gets the debtors, he says, you write it in, you write it in with the book, trust me, it's fine and every debtor is assuming that he's acting on his master's authority. Because the steward can't actually make these deals. The steward is not empowered. It's illegal for him to act on his own. But they just put two and two together. They assume that he has the right to do this. And so they write it in. His hands are clean. He's done nothing. And then he goes to the master. And by this time, news has spread. The whole village, there's this kind of buzz of excitement. Everyone's just talking about it. They're talking about the day that they have experienced the most generous renter of land in the history of this village. He's given us these amazing deals. And his steward, what a great guy that has talked his master into doing this incredibly generous thing. And they start celebrating. And then the music cuts in do 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 and the guy walks in, he puts his glasses on. It's a kind of slow motion. He has the account book under his hand. He goes to his master and he says, I'm just giving back the accounts. And the master opens up the book and it's like, wait, what? And he sees the handwriting of his closest business associates as they've written down their own debt. And now he's trapped. He's only got two options. Option one, he goes to everybody, everyone in the village who's already celebrating and high-fiving him. And they're saying, actually, my steward acted without my consent. This is totally illegal. I'm afraid these are not legally binding. I have to insist on the right amount of payment. In which case, it's a real downer. Or he just does what he does, which is to kind of clap at the guy. You little, clever fellow. That is absolutely brilliant. And so they walk through the town together and everyone said, oh, you're so generous. He said, yes, I am. I am so generous. Your steward is so amazing. Yes, he is amazing. And uh, it says this, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Eventually, the word's going to get out. Oh, that guy was actually sacked. And then people put two and two together, and they figure out, (laughs) I I see what he did. Oh, oh, that is smart. I mean, he has got a pair on him. That is just that's sneaky. Let's employ him. I don't trust him, but I'd rather have him under my roof than working for the opposition. That guy is. Plus, he saved me a lot of money. And what he has done is really brilliant. And this is the difficulty of the parable, is that it seems like Jesus is commending dishonesty. But what he's doing is he's saying, think about how the manager thought, and then you think about wealth like this. Because the key to this parable is the way that the manager thought. He used money as a means to an end. That's what the parable is about. The problem is this manager, corrupt, dishonest crook as he is, he knows that the money that he has isn't his and it's only his for a limited amount of time. He can only have influence and and the use of it. And rather than saying money is my master, he's saying I'm going to make money a means to an end. I've got Trusted wealth, limited time, but a good master. I'm gambling. I'm gambling that he is a fundamentally good man. I'm gambling that he's going to go along with it. I mean, he could end me. He could take my family into slavery, but I'm gambling. I know that he's good, and I'm going to exploit that goodness. And I'm using the money that's been entrusted to me as a means to an end. It's not like this is a story of a man who took the money in and just saved it for himself or consumed it himself. It's about someone who understood that actually money is not a good master, but it's a great means. It's a great means to an end. And so how can I use the money that's been entrusted to me as a means to an end? My end is I want to have something beyond after this phase of life is through. I want to have something that's going to guarantee my future and Jesus says that we're the same as this servant that we've been trusted with wealth we've been trusted with wealth the way that the bible talks about wealth and the money that we have is that we're like managers we're stewards it's something that God has allowed us to manage in our lifetime Sometimes we have this view about money. It's the view that money itself wants to inculcate within us. That it's, it's my money. It belongs to me. I earned it. I deserve it. I made it. It's mine. But Jesus says, the way that you think about money is that it's something that you've been trusted with. You could have the same gifts, same talents, but you could have been born in some other part of the country. In some other part of the world, rather, where you would be in abject poverty to different parents in different circumstances. You could be just as bright, just as intelligent, just as motivated, and yet trying to subsist on less than a dollar a day. But for whatever reason, God has trusted you with wealth. You've got it for a limited time. You cannot take it with you. And so you've got to think about, how do I view money? Most of all, we have a good master. So Jesus' imperative to us is use money as an end. Use money as a means to an end, not as an end in itself. Consumerism says, use money for money's sake. Buy, purchase, accumulate, store, save, hoard, spend. But God says, that's a short sighted way of looking about money. You should think about what is it that I want to achieve with my life? And you can use money as a means to that end. More specifically, Jesus says, use temporary wealth in the light of eternal heavenly gain. So he goes and speaks about this manager, about how um, he's done for himself, he's got Friends for his next job. But then Jesus says, You should be looking to use your money to gain eternal residence, to gain a, a, an entry into the household of, of God Himself, the eternal heavenly realm. Whenever we talk about this, it's really difficult because sometimes it can seem like, you know, is it like Jesus or is it like me trying to say, Well, you know, if you give your money to God, then you'll get a good place in heaven. Because that also sounds like a kind of scam. It sounds like the kind of scam that the church has been perpetrating for centuries. Give us your money and we'll we'll guarantee your place in heaven. We can save your sins. We can give you indulgences. All you need to do is just give us your credit card number and we'll sort it out for you. And are we saying, and is Jesus saying, that if you give and if you are sacrificial in the way that you handle money, then you're gonna have a better reward in, in heaven. What is it saying? Actually what Jesus is saying, It's not completely defined. Because whenever Jesus talks about eternity, whenever Jesus talks about the the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the life to come, the age to come, whenever Jesus talks about that, it's always veiled to a certain degree. We can't fully understand. We can't fully comprehend. It's like Jesus says, look, you can't really grasp what I'm talking about here. But let me just allude to it. Suffice to say, there's a way to use money for a greater purpose, for an eternal purpose, for heavenly purposes, or you can just have it as your master. So then he kind of clarifies, he goes on and he says, This whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Everyone say, True riches. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What Jesus is saying here in a faith is something like this. He's saying money is a great proving ground. It's a testing ground. It's a way of God seeing what is in you. It's a way of God being able to see what your values truly are. And in Jesus' eyes, worldly wealth is a little thing. He says, if we learn how to be generous and God honoring and make Jesus king of our wealth, then God will trust us with real riches. You say, Philip, what are real riches? I say, I don't know. I don't know, but it sounds good. And Jesus says, look, the way that we know how we can trust you is what you do with the little things. Sometimes when we talk about giving, people that don't have much income, students, uh, will sometimes say, oh, I don't have much to give. In fact, I have nothing to give. In fact, the money that I have is not even my own. It's like a loan. Uh, So there's nothing I can do. Um, But when I have a job and when I have proper cash income, then I'll do it. But Jesus says, it's not like that. Actually, the way that you do it is you start small and then you go big. If you can't give when it's a small amount, you won't be able to give when it's a large amount. But there's something about using money as a means to an end. What do we want to accomplish with our lives? Is it possible that our money can make an impact that is beyond us? And Jesus says this is the smart play. This is the one that gets people applauding because it requires a certain amount of boldness, courage, uh, a certain viewpoint, a mentality about money that sees the long picture and takes a step back and thinks, how can I invest my money in something that has eternal worth and eternal value? We're gonna pray in just a minute. There's not gonna be any kind of hard sell on this. What we try to do with money is we just try to teach on it two or three times every year. Um, just so that we are understanding the principles that we're working with. But for those of you that have not heard this, here's a quick summary. We have tried as a church to follow the kind of principles that we found in the early church. One particular, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, um, it had these kind of flavors. So in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, the principle was, it should be personal. So he's trying to raise um, an offering, For the churches in need. And he says, each one of you. In other words, it was done privately and it was done personally it wasn't a great big emotional appeal it was up to people to do it themselves and jesus consistently says you know you should give cheerfully god loves a cheerful giver it doesn't work if you give resentfully or feeling uh guilt trips or anything like that It has got to be something that you think actually i want to do this i want my money to be a means to an end and if i can use my money to have an eternal heavenly impact then that's got to be wonderful so it's personal. The second thing is that it's predetermined. So he says, on the first day of each week, you set a little bit aside. And that's why we don't do too many of these kind of emotional, come and bring your money to the front things publicly. But most of us that give, we give on a regular basis. So it'd be like a monthly standing order. or Sometimes people give weekly, but it's a kind of a predetermined amount which is thirdly proportional. So in keeping with your income is what Paul said. Now, some of you may have come from churches where they talk about a tithe, which is literally 10%. We uh, we don't hold that religiously. I think a tithe is a good kind of rough guide in many cases, Uh, but for many of us, 10% actually is is very easy. You know, Kate and I, we aspire to give more than 10%. We want to be giving way more than 10%. For others, actually 10%, uh, given what you have and the margin that you have, would be a stretch. But the principle is that it's in proportion to what I have. So if you want to be, um, if you're not giving, and by the way, again, I don't want to put pressure on anybody for this. What I want to do is I want to say, this is what Jesus talks about. This is why Jesus talks about it. And I think this is why it's important. I feel like Jesus speaks so much about money because it's a way that God can bless us powerfully. I feel like God has so much to give us. And he's saying, look, I'm just going to trust you with some, some little stuff. And if we can get Our trust in him, make him our king, and give and live generously. You know, the early church, they would fast a day a week in order to give money um, because they had so little. This is a a parable to disciples who've got so little. They're not wealthy people. They're not rich people. But it's like God saying, you can trust me, and I will provide your needs. And as you give, actually, you can be investing in something of eternal heavenly value. So two-thirds of, of um, those that call Metro home don't give, don't give at all, don't give regularly. And uh, I, I kind of feel like that's, that's kind of on me. I feel like we've not done a good enough job of imparting how wonderful it is to be able to give to the things of God. Um, so if you are wanting to give um, or to change your giving or whatever, then just go to woodlandsmetro.church giving. And the way that we do money, As a church, is that we we trust God. Everything that we do is generated by the money that's given by people in this church. It's not like the weekend away where we say, right, come on the weekend, you have gotta pay for it. We say, no one has to pay for anything. We'll trust God and people give. It costs us tens of thousands of pounds a year just to meet in this venue. We have people who give themselves and and have to be supported. Um, It's all done by what we give. And actually what we're trying to do is we're trying to do something of eternal heavenly gain. And so we say, let's use our money, let's use our resources for this gain, let's use it for this eternal purpose. You know, the more that we have, the more resources that we have, the more we can see people finding Jesus. We want to plant a morning service in the autumn. That means a whole new level of expenditure uh, around venues. We'd like to increase the team. We'd like to bring more people on. Um, We can only do that with resources, but I believe it has eternal value to help people find Jesus, love one another, and follow Jesus and serve their city. So, here's a big idea, and then let's pray. Big big idea is this. Treat money as a means to an end, not a master. We've been trusted with wealth for a limited time by a good master. So let's use our temporary worldly wealth in the light of eternal heavenly gain. Let's pray right now. I'm just going to give a little bit of of time and space to let the holy spirit speak to us individually. Father we you know we find it so hard we find it so hard lord we 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 can trust you with so much we can trust you to forgive our sins we can trust you to give us salvation. We can trust you to raise us from the dead. We find it hard to trust you with our money. We, we find it hard to trust that you'll come through for us, that we won't be left the poorer for it. I want to pray, Lord God, that we would just have a revelation of, of how good you are. What a wonderful master. I thank you, Father, that you've entrusted us as stewards and managers of wealth. Lord, when we could so easily have been like the billions of poor in this world. And I want to pray, Lord God, that you speak to each of us individually. Lord, I pray that no one would feel under pressure or any guilt in this. But Lord, I want to pray that we would be cheerful givers. And I want to pray, Lord God, that the money that we use may be a means to an eternal end. We love our city. We love the people in it. We want to see them impacted by the kingdom of God. And I pray that we would be able to just have the joy of seeing that what we invest in produces an amazing return. In Jesus' name.